Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hi, Catherine. Hey, how's it going? It's okay. How are you? Is it... F- uh, I'm good today. Today I feel pretty good. Um... You know what the correct answer to that question is I recently learned from reading The Atlantic. What is it? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> and that's apparently always the right answer, and you can just sort of inflect it differently depending on, um, you know, if you're acknowledging some really hard times. Or it can be like, everything's perfectly fine. It can mean anything. Oh my God, it's so good. It's an all-purpose response. Okay, let's try it again. How are you doing, Jim? Not too bad. How about you, well, now Catherine? You ask, yeah, then Wait, you ask me. how are you, Catherine? You know, not too bad. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, great. Well, thank you to James Parker and Ode to Small Talk in the October 2020 issue of The Atlantic Magazine for that tip. <laughs> okay, good book. Um, well, let's get to it. I've got, uh, I've got questions. Uh, a listener named James. Is this you, Jim? Nope. Did you write in? No. Hmm. Another person named James wrote in and asked us about the Great Barrington Declaration. Mm. What is the, who's declaring what? A few people have asked me about this declaration, and it did get kind of national news from the New York Times this week that the White House was taking this seriously, this, what's called yeah. the Great Barrington Declaration. What is it? Um and also, why is it called that? <laughs> like, is there any reasonable justification for it being named like that? Um, I think it is a sort of Tea Party-ish libertarian vibing of the diction there. Self-seriousness, you know. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Like we are, like the, like the great men convened and yes, we have convened in so. a mm-hmm. place in the Northeast with a cool name which has mountain mm-hmm. views and woods and group of people apparently convened who the, the lead authors on this paper are a professor, full professors at Harvard, Stanford, and, and Oxford, not mm-hmm. people without credentials, at least. And they wrote this sort of brief argument that herd immunity should be the driving force behind our response to COVID because the harms of, you know, taking yeah. measures to address it are too great. Okay. Yeah. Sort of something we talked about. Is there anything new in the argument or is it like just a reiteration of? No, it's extremely nonspecific. And what is new is just that it has several, several thousand signatories, but it's an online petition where people may or may not be real. We don't know. It at least has a dozen people who put their names on it, who, um, you know, have mainstream sort of credentials so, like, some, some professors at elite universities got together in a place called Barrington? Great Barrington. And, like... You've never been? Great... It's, no, it's one is, of the places, like, that the Times writes about as, like, the next <laughs> the next Brooklyn or, like... Oh, my God. Okay, this might be a little insider but me ev- with occasionally... <laughs> like, once... I don't want to hear anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an upstate place within, like, three hours of, of New York where some wealthy people abscond to on, on weekends and... Um, and they all, I, I don't mean to 
Like, why is this so funny to me? Just the Great Barrington Declaration. Like, it just, yeah. the pomposity of the name is really tickling me. Yeah. But anyway, all they're saying is like herd immunity, we should actually do it. Like, we 12 professors think that herd immunity should be done. Um. Well, I mean, I don't want to dismiss, you know, one of the people is Gabriela Gomez, who I interviewed uh, back in the spring when I first wrote about the idea of herd immunity. Oh, she um, was the one who said that, Herd immunity could be twenty percent, right? Yeah, and and I I don't, you know, I take seriously their concerns about the impacts of, you know, especially school closures, but uh, you know, all kinds of business closures. It's bad for everyone. There are public health yes, impacts. This of is that. horrible. Like during normal times, public health is, you know, very concerned about getting people steady employment and right. you know right. access to healthy social lives. So this is a dangerous needle that everyone's threading. And and I take seriously like her models. She believes that it, because of this heterogeneity, which we've we've discussed, that that herd immunity thresholds could be a lot lower than ninety percent or something like we might initially imagine. But uh, without putting any like disingenuousness onto anyone, I think um, it's also just sort of a false and empty argument that we are trying to thread this needle of doing things as safely as possible. No one is advocating just shelter in place orders for a year or all schools should just straight up be canceled. Right. Functionally, all across the country, we're doing a modified opening. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you want to offer, like, if you want to be broadly critical of measures, like, I think Mm -hmm. you need to offer productive solutions that aren't, (laughs) this is... That don't result in two million people dying? It's sort of... You kind of have to say specifically what you mean, you know. Um, yeah. There are specific, like, great arguments we made about how much schools should be open, you know, how restaurants should survive. But it seems pretty clearly that it's a, it's a balance of partial opening with safety measures and, uh, you know, subsidies from the government to make up the rest. Because we can't, you know, we don't want to... Restaurants and bars and salons and things are going to go out of business if you don't support them even if there's no regulation on what people do. So Yeah, yeah. We've we've talked about all this before. So yeah, it doesn't Yeah, but so the, the apparently, you know, these reports of the White House flirting with this idea, it's just keeps coming up and it's very it's a very attractive idea. We'll just go back to doing everything as we would before, but an element that I think we haven't talked about is kind of the um privilege in that proposition. You know who would who's hit hardest if we in some hypothetical universe, just said, okay, everyone go back to doing everything exactly as you were, you know? Yeah. Well, it would just be an exaggerated version of what's happening now, which is poor people and people without access to health care are dying at disproportionately high rates. So, yeah. So it's not just about, like, the absolute number of, you know, fatalities that are being proposed. It's an ultra-privileged, you know, idea of, like, we group of people whose kids go to private school or and who mm-hmm. live in areas where people are pretty distanced anyway and we have big places to quarantine um, think we should just go ahead and roll the dice and if we get sick, we'll get our great health care and take a chance, you know? And yeah. it's not representative of, you know, how the disease would actually spread if you simply did that. And then once you propose that, it means, like, you don't need to bail places out, so... Anyway, it's yeah. especially an odd thing to propose just a few months ostensibly before, <laughs> allegedly before we have a vaccine, which really 
could change the game. So why would you just... Yeah. Well, let's return to this. You asked. I did. Um, All right. So today I'm actually asking you that my actual question today is um, about the Affordable Care Act, which... Did you watch the vice presidential debate last week? I did. You know, I think enough has been said about the fly, but Mm -hmm. maybe less has been said about the Affordable Care Act. So one thing Senator Harris said was she had this memorable moment where she was like, if you're benefiting from the sort of banner provisions of the Affordable Care Act, she said she looked directly to Cameron and she was like, they're coming for you. Yeah. That's what I want to talk about. What's going on with the Affordable Care Act? Like, is it actually threatened? What is their actual plan? You know, they say repeal and replace. I understand there's not a replacement um, ready to go or even maybe a particularly outlined plan for what a replacement would be. There never was. That's the the wildest thing. That was kind of between that and the wall, the central campaign promises of 2016 and neither materialized. And, you know, I think we should talk to someone who's smarter on policy than I am about this. But I do know it's just an extremely interesting time when the courts are being used to try to do something that the legislature couldn't, that they didn't have the votes in Congress to repeal the ACA. Because it's actually kind of popular? (laughs) Oh, it's extremely popular. In fact, Donald Trump is campaigning on saying he wants pre-existing conditions to be protected. Which is already the case. (laughs) While at the same time that this argument is being made that Barrett should be pushed through, the nomination should should be pushed through because there's a mandate from the people to do that because of who is elected to office. The exact opposite thing is happening with, there was clearly not a mandate to repeal the ACA. Right, right. Well, I want to understand this. Yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, Let's, I I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's talk with someone who knows more about this than I do. Um, We're going to talk to Karen Pollitz. She's a senior fellow with the Kaiser Family Foundation, where she works on health reform issues. Great. Hello, it's Karen. Hey, Karen. This is Catherine. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm good. How are you? My husband just came in. He's a fourth grade teacher teaching remotely, and he's trying to kind of... uh, you know, get the kids' attention. He said, would it be okay if I played my drums for a few minutes? I said, not, <laughs> not now. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd be happy to He can play drums his drums. Play. We'll just do an interview with, he can score the podcast. <laughs> That's right. Hit the cymbals right when we get to pre-X. So. <laughs> no, I mean, I really, I don't want to, well, we'll try. No, no, it's fine. He'll do it later. Time. It's fine. <laughs> They're nine and it's hard to hold their attention. <laughs> oh, my god. So gosh. he plays drums? Is it a music class or? No, no, he's just a fourth grade teacher. He, it's a second career. Um, he was a journalist before that. It's a third career. He was a journalist before that and a musician before that. So, oh, wow. yeah, he can't figure out what he wants to be when he grows up. And we're 62. <laughs> <laughs> That's inspirational, actually. Please yes. tell him thank you yes. for being an inspiration. Yeah. Um, hi, hi, Karen. I'm Jim. Hi, Jim. I usually introduce myself about a third or halfway through the podcast. Okay. Well, good to get it done now. Yeah. So. <laughs> So, Karen, uh, we are calling you today about the ACA. Mm-hmm. It's in the news. There's a lot of uh, sort of back and forth about it. But we're hoping that you can lay out for us what is 
actually going on with it. Sure. I think maybe a good place to start is just, I mean, I, I think we're all pretty familiar with the ACA, but could you give us a little capsule reminder for anyone who isn't, uh, has sort of lost track in all of the news sure. about it? <laughs> no, I'd be happy to. The, the ACA is actually a great big law that changed a lot of things in our healthcare system. Um, I think for this conversation, I would focus on health insurance. So in the United States, you can think of health insurance a little bit like a game of musical chairs. You know, most of us. And you're not just saying that because your husband is in ninth grade and he teaches nine, nine-year-olds. I am not just saying that for that reason, but no, it's, it's a, but that works too. Maybe I will go ask him to start playing. Yeah. Um, yeah. any rate, I, you know, most of us have coverage most of the time and we can just sort of count on it. If something happens, you know, there's a chair to catch us. Um, but we do move around and things change in our life. And if we change jobs or get laid off during a pandemic, or if we turn 26, which my youngest is about to do in a couple of months, all of a sudden there's no chair behind you. So the -hmm. Affordable Care Act really tried to fix that. Um, And then you fall down. And hurt your tailbone, and <laughs> you can't not, go to the doctor because you don't have health right, insurance. Right, right, right. So you know, okay. so with the Affordable Care Act, it's much more likely when the music stops that there's a chair for you. Uh, the first thing it did was to expand the Medicaid program, which used to be you know a welfare health program. It came with welfare benefits, but the ACA really transformed it and made it a public plan that is there for people when they have low incomes. So during this pandemic, even if you were making, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year, if you get laid off and you have no income, you can qualify for Medicaid because it's there now while you have low income. It's comprehensive. There's no premium. There's no deductible. Uh, the Supreme Court in an earlier case did make the Medicaid change a state option. And so we still have about a dozen states, mostly in the South, that have not adopted this change. But in most of America, that public program is there for you if you lose your income and your health insurance and you need coverage. The other thing that changed was the individual market, which a lot of people will touch at some point in their lives, but mostly it's just a small group of people who buy coverage on their own. Mostly we get coverage at work, which our employers pay for most of, um, or we get coverage through public plans like Medicaid or Medicare, which the taxpayer pays most of that bill. In the individual market before the ACA, you paid the whole thing yourself. Mm -hmm. So that was unaffordable for a lot of people when they were between jobs or, you know, just otherwise needed to get coverage on their own. And it was really a crummy market. Um, It was medically underwritten. So you could only buy coverage in this market if you were healthy enough. And that's a little kind of hard to wrap your head around. You can't buy health insurance (laughs) if you're sick. Uh, I remember trying to explain that to some students from Canada once, and they just looked at me like I had misspoken. I said, no, that's how this is. So that's how this market used to be. um, I'm a cancer survivor, so I'm uninsurable in the old individual market. No insurer would sell me coverage. And if I had a different kind of health history or pre-existing condition. That is so, I mean, we should just, I'm sorry, I just wanted to pause on that because it's still wild to me that yeah. that 
was the case. I'm and not I happy think about it. <laughs> we probably take for granted. We probably right. take for granted now that that was it. Like it feels a long time ago that something like that was the situation. Well, it's not that long ago, right? It's since 2014, right? So, you know, six years ago, I live in Maryland. And if I had tried to buy health insurance with a recent cancer history, I would have been turned down by every insurance company in the state. Mm-hmm. That's just how it was. So now that's not the case. So, And then you just have to pay out of pocket for everything. Yeah, which, right, that's my house. I mean, every year that I've I've had cancer a couple of times, every year has been a six-figure medical bill year. You know, all the other years in my life, I'm a great deal for any health insurance company. But if the cancer comes back, I'm expensive. So, um, and, and that's why we need health insurance, right? We don't buy it in case we stay healthy. We buy it in case we get sick. So before the ACA, the individual market was, you can have health insurance unless you get sick. Um, in addition, um, in this market, there was a lot of skimpy coverage, literally the definition of health insurance under federal law before the ACA was anything a licensed health insurance company sells. So they could sell you a policy that covered a toothbrush, and that was health insurance. The ACA said, no. (laughs) Now we're going to set some standards for the individual market. It has to be major medical coverage. It has to cover stuff that people would need if they get sick, like hospitalization and doctor visits and chemotherapy and prescription drugs and mental health care and maternity care in case you, you know, get pregnant. It it has to cover that stuff. It can't have $20,000 deductibles anymore. There are limits on how high the deductibles can be. There can't be lifetime limits, annual limits. You know, sure, we'll cover prescription drugs up to a hundred bucks a year. That's not allowed anymore. So the ACA also made this market major medical coverage. So that was a big change. And that, of course, meant that policies couldn't be sold as cheaply as they were before the ACA when there were only skinny benefits and sick people weren't allowed. So, you know, the average cost of a policy in the individual market now is it's getting close to $6,000 a year. It's getting close to what the average cost of employer-based coverage is. And and even that is with really high deductibles. You know, the average silver plan has like a four to five thousand dollar deductible. So, mm. so that's not affordable for most people. They need help to get that coverage the same way they need help affording job based coverage or public coverage. So, the ACA also said, okay, there's financial help for people. If you've got income, you know, at the poverty level, up to four times the poverty level, which is about fifty thousand dollar a year salary for a single person will help you. Um, We'll help you pay the premiums. And if your income's a little bit lower, up to two and a half times the poverty level, we'll also help you with the deductibles. We'll offer you policies with lower deductibles. So those were all huge changes. And again, the biggest changes were in this little individual market, which most of us don't need most of the time. But in that game of musical chairs, (laughs) it's important So (laughs) when my kid turns 26, if she doesn't have a job with benefits, she can go to the marketplace. Um, If you get laid off. Especially important in a situation where, say, you have an unemployment rate 
<laughs> due to a pandemic that is yeah. extremely high. Well, and we did an analysis this spring, just sort of looking at the risk of job loss, you know, just as unemployment was ramping up. And we estimated between 80 and 90% of people who might lose job-based coverage would be eligible for some replacement coverage under the ACA. Mm-hmm. So that's important. It's not a perfect, <laughs> it's not a perfect game of musical chairs yet, but it's a whole lot better than it used to be. It actually seems like the ACA is like, thank goodness we have it in a situation where we are both experiencing a national health crisis and a national unemployment crisis. Like this is what it's for. Yeah, I mean, to use a different metaphor, this is like having seatbelts and airbags in your car. You know, most of the time in the parking lot, you don't really care. But if the high speed crash happens now, you care about that. And that's the protection that the ACA provides. So um, just to play maybe devil's advocate a little bit, when you think about other forms of insurance, auto insurance, uh, flood insurance, uh, home insurance. You know, you can't wait until you've had an accident to buy auto insurance. You can't wait until your house is on fire to have home insurance. Um, Otherwise, you know, there'd be no industry because they they rely on people whose homes aren't burning and whose cars are not, you know, whose cars are working well in order to stay in business. So how do you, you know, allow people to, say, from, from the perspective of an insurer, wait until you're sick in order to, to buy insurance. So the insurers absolutely cared about that. <laughs> That's the why the market used to work the way it worked. So the Affordable Care Act had two things. One, there was a mandate, right? There was a requirement to have insurance or else pay a tax penalty. And then second, there were all of these subsidies so that the choice of buying health insurance or making your car payment didn't have to be so horrible, mm-hmm. right? $500 a month is a car payment. Um, but if you can get that price down to maybe a hundred bucks a month or 75 bucks a month with the subsidies, then even without a mandate, it turns out people want insurance. You know, people really do want insurance, uh, health insurance. All of our, all of our surveys have shown this for a long time. If it's not a financial sacrifice, they'll get it on their yeah. own. You don't even need the mandate. I mean, it made a little difference to lose the mandate, but pretty much since that went away two years ago, the markets has stayed pretty stable. The subsidies make it possible for people to come into that market voluntarily, and when they can, they do. Okay. So there was an idea that if if we had this allowance for pre-existing conditions, that you would have to have a mandate. That the okay. two things came hand in hand, go hand in hand. But it seems like that's proving not to be true if you make insurance affordable enough. Yes, it turns out the subsidies cured most of the adverse selection um, that the insurers worried about. So yeah, it has worked okay without the penalty. Okay. So what what is in jeopardy now? What is being <laughs> challenged? What part of well, it? so the case that was filed challenges the whole thing. This is before the Supreme but Court. This is the case before the Supreme Court. The Republican state officials and the Trump administration have filed briefs saying, well, now that the mandate penalty is gone, you have to throw out the entire law. 
all of it. The Medicaid expansion, the market reforms, the subsidies, the insurance standards, and the other stuff that was outside of that, you know, changing the Medicare donut hole for senior citizens and, uh, you know, giving FDA authority to license essentially generic biologics like, um, you know, insulin. So uh, there were tons of changes across our healthcare system in the ACA. And the case that's before the court says all of that is invalidated because this one provision no longer has a penalty. Wait, what the initial challenge to the ACA in the Supreme Court was over the mandate being an unconstitutional idea. Yeah, I thought we already went right? through this. Didn't uh, the Supreme Court already say the law is fine? They did, but the argument is that the Supreme Court ruled that because there was a tax penalty to the mandate, that the mandate was really a tax provision, and Congress clearly has authority under the Constitution to levy taxes, and Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. that was okay. And now the plaintiffs are saying, but the tax penalty is gone, so it isn't a tax anymore, so now there's a mandate, albeit with no penalty, but that's still unconstitutional, and so the whole law has to come down. A lot of legal scholars look at this, even conservative legal scholars, and say that's kind of ridiculous on its face. But that is the case that is before the Supreme Court now. So the case, just so I understand this, the case is arguing that the mandate remains unconstitutional, even Mm -hmm. if there is no penalty slash tax. In fact, because there's no penalty, yes. Mm. Interesting. (laughs) And then, therefore, the whole law is unconstitutional. Right. Is the likely outcome that the Supreme Court just says, okay, you can't have a man, okay, sure, we can't have a mandate, but the law isn't unconstitutional? So I don't know if anybody, I certainly won't say what a likely outcome is. Nobody knows, right? 2020 has been quite a year. And now with the Supreme Court makeup changing, nobody knows what the outcome is. So, you know, at the one end, the court could agree and say, yep, the whole thing's bad. It's all gone. It's invalidated. At the other end, they could say, this is stupid on its face and dismiss the case. In between, they could say, well, okay, yeah, the mandate now is unconstitutional, but there's this severability argument. So maybe the whole law doesn't have to go, but Mm-hmm. what would have to go with it. Um, yeah. And um, earlier uh, briefs by the Trump administration and memos to the Congress suggested that those market reforms would have to go because the mandate was gone. So the individual market could go back to turning me down because I'm a cancer mm-hmm. survivor. Mm-hmm. Group health plans at work could go back to excluding your pre-existing condition. Group plans did that before the ACA. Um, the sort of major medical standard for health insurance, gone. Uh, subsidies, you know, who knows? So that that whole kind of severability argument lies in between the two extreme outcomes. And honestly, nobody knows with a new court how this might work. Is there, I guess I'm struggling to understand. I mean, I understand the taxation argument. I don't understand this one. Like who suffers from there being the ACA? Like who is losing money? Who is suffering? Like who is this lawsuit being filed on behalf of? Well, most of the plaintiffs are Republican state attorneys general, and I think there may be one or two governors still in there, uh, as well as some individuals. But they, like I said, most scholars look at this case and say, there's no there there. 
it shouldn't have come this far, but it was brought in a federal district court in Texas uh, and heard before a judge who has made, you know, that venue was picked for a reason. um, And that judge ruled immediately, yep, the whole law has to go. It's unconstitutional and the whole law has to go. Um, And it came up through the appeals court. The appeals court said they agreed that the mandate is now unconstitutional, but they thought some kind of further severability analysis needs to happen. The appeals courts was ready to send it back to Judge O'Connor at the district level and have him kind of reconsider if the whole law has to go. But both sides appealed. And so instead, it went right to the Supreme Court. So it's it's kind of an odd situation to be in. But with the president and the United States Justice Department weighing in on the side of the plaintiffs, it is solidly before the court. And that's where we are now. So is this is this mainly an ideological argument just about the government's role? That is definitely part of it. You know, I think there are also I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so but I think there are also, you know, some kind You're of You're closer more... to it than I am. <laughs> well, maybe just by miles, but I <laughs> did not go to law school. But um, you know, I, I think there are other arguments about sort of the constitutionality of laws that the Congress enacts and sort of what is the standard for you know, what these laws can and can't require and how they have to be crafted. So all of that is kind of wrapped up in this case right now. But for people, it just feels kind of scary. You know, I mean, 20 million people could lose their coverage if this law gets erased. Um, And a whole lot of us, uh, tens of millions of us, uh, over 50 million of us um, uh, adults could be, again, labeled uninsurable. So that if, you know, in that game of musical chairs, we find ourselves between job-based coverage and eligible for a public plan, we got no place to go. And that could happen really shortly. Oral arguments begin in November, a week after the election. And the expectation is, at the risk of predicting, that the court generally, when they hear a big case like this, they don't render a decision until the end of the term, which would be at the end of next June. So that's why this is such a focus this week with the Senate confirmation hearings, is yes. that if the new justice is confirmed before those oral arguments, then... then And she gets to sit and she gets to be part of the decision. And, Got it. you know, this is the third trip to the Supreme Court for the Affordable Care Act, and it's been right. upheld twice before by a vote of five to four. So the expectation is five to four is going to be harder to achieve this time. Got it. I understand that Barrett has not answered questions directly about, you know, any potential rulings, but is there a sense of precedent, her judicial understanding of things that gives us any clue of how she might rule on something like this? There's some concern she wrote, not in an opinion, but I don't know, in another article at some point in the past that she thought the 2012 decision to uphold the constitutionality was decided wrongly. And so it's, you know, my answer is who knows. Um, But, uh, you know, we have lost one solid supporter of the ACA and that justice is being replaced now with a question mark. 
Okay, so you talked about pre-existing conditions like cancer, for instance, but would COVID-19, would coronavirus be counted as a pre-existing condition? It absolutely could be. So uh, (laughs) 20 years ago, uh, before I worked at the Kaiser Family Foundation, I did a study for them. I worked uh, with a good friend who worked in the industry, and we did a national survey of senior medical underwriters for health insurance companies that sold individual health insurance. And we presented them with hypothetical applicants who had, you know, heights and weights and ages and conditions and diagnoses and doses of meds that they took and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And we asked them, you know, would you sell these people coverage? Uh, You know, at the one extreme, we had a young man who had HIV and he got turned down every time. So that was not really a surprise. At the other extreme, we had a young woman who was just in excellent health, except she had seasonal hay fever and she got turned down. Um, several times. She was offered a policy at a surcharge premium. Okay, we'll sell you coverage, but you know, you're going to pay 50% more than the advertised price. Uh, she got offered policies that excluded her allergies. She also got policies that excluded her entire upper rep- respiratory system, policies Whoa. that excluded the drug benefit. So they basically took away the drug benefit. So, you know, medical underwriting was pretty fussy in those days. Crosswalk that to COVID. It's a little trickier. Uh, this is still a new condition. And I would just note that uncertainty is something that medical underwriters just hate, right? They don't want to sign on and promise to pay all your claims if they're not sure (laughs) what you might need. So that was the point of medical underwriting. So at least for now in this first, you know, six or so months of COVID, we know that for most people, it's an awful infection and uncomfortable, but it's relatively mild. Um, You know, you get sick, you're down for a couple of weeks, you have a fever, but then you get better and you're okay. But we also know there are some folks where it doesn't end like that. Um, They're called the long haulers, and they may continue to have symptoms for an extended period of time. Sometimes those are mild, you know, you just can't taste or smell. Or it could be more severe, long-term serious damage to your lungs or your heart or your immune system or something else. So, you know, Insurers, I think, would be worried about that. And certainly if they saw a recent case of COVID, I think underwriters could act on that. Another thing they might worry about would be people who just test frequently because maybe they drive an Uber or they are cashier at a store or they deliver you know, groceries. They're in contact with the public a lot and they're exposed and they're worried about getting sick. So just being at elevated risk for COVID, I think is something that insurers would look at. In addition to being uninsurable for your health condition, insurers also had lists of uninsurable occupations. And on that list, I just was looking at one of the old underwriting manuals was taxi driver. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. So, uh, you know, as well as coal miner and logger, right? Dangerous jobs. But uh, way before COVID, taxi driver was on the list just because you get exposed to a lot of things. So, so yeah, I I think in a medically underwritten insurance market, COVID-19 could make it harder for you to get insurance. And 
if you were able to buy it, you may well, if you're at risk, um, uh, be offered a policy that just excludes all treatment for anything related to COVID. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, so there. Uh, seems <laughs> we did it. We covered it. I, I understand. I hadn't thought through all of that. So thank you. Can I ask you one last thing, just maybe as a, as a bit of a mood lifter? Sure. Um, I mean, your husband can play the drums now. Can we, can we listen to a little bit? <laughs> I'll have to go downstairs. Do you want me to do that? Yeah. Would you ask him to, to play us okay. a little outro, uh, outro Hang drumming? On. Hey, sweetie. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you at a place where you could play drums for the kids? Not, right now. Not now. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. We missed our opportunity. They're doing it. Oh, test. too bad. Too bad. Okay. <laughs> Talk about um, mood dampening. I know. I know. He's, he's trying to teach there. Test. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll, uh, we'll catch him later. We'll call him back later for, for drumming. My second podcast ever. I'm feeling young and with it. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you are a fantastic explainer yeah. and speaker. Oh, well, thank so thank you. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. So now we know what's at stake. Yeah. Yeah. This the ACA was a massive compromise. It was disappointing in ways to everyone. You know, it's nowhere near something like Medicare for All, and, and Obama couldn't even get a public option in there. And it ended up being extremely well supported by the medical industrial complex, by the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. When you look at the provisions of the ACA and you ask people about them individually, they pull really, really well. People like having affordable insurance. They want a marketplace. I mean, the, the law literally created a marketplace to foster competition and transparency so people right. could look at plans and decide which one they wanted and the competition would drive prices down, which is this very free market capitalist idea. And yes, it had to define what insurance was, which meant, you know, putting some limits on, you know, what had to be covered in order to call yourself health insurance. Can't be like, we provide you Band-Aids. Yeah. So anyway, the odd thing is that you're challenging the constitutionality of requiring people to buy a product, which is legitimately an interesting question. Can you make people buy something from a private company? Right. You know, which is only exists as this compromise to people not wanting to just have it taken out of their taxes and buy into a national right. healthcare system. Which then would be a different thing. Yeah, which would be cheaper. And that would be But the, the whole kind reason of... it was written that way was as a compromise to not make it socialism. <laughs> right, right. That that is the fundamental thing is like yeah. this is a very much a compromise between everyone is completely on their own and everyone pays through their taxes and, and gets healthcare and it's part of just like tap water and roads. So it's something very much in between and it's hard to imagine what people are envisioning when they talk about just simply repealing it. And, then, and that's why there's been no proposal from Trump's administration to what they actually are talking about. Yeah, yeah, because it was such a beast to get it created in the first place. It's not like there's an easy solution. Yeah. Right. I am done and I've got to go to a different call. Oh, okay. I got to go work. <laughs> Well, um, it does seem like everything's coming together in this moment, right? You have this yes. new Supreme Court justice during a pandemic, uh, you know, with a looming ruling about the whole nation's healthcare industry and insurance and everyone's ass. Like, and right before a presidential election. This is just a very unique moment in history. And uh, 
it's helpful to yeah. to talk it through and, and think about all of the yeah, yeah, specific sure, ramifications sure. that are on the table. Yes, this is very, very helpful. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. This show was produced today by Kevin Townsend. You can write us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com or call us 202-642-6487. And please subscribe to The Atlantic if you haven't already. Theatlantic.com slash support us. All right. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Bye, guys. Have a good lunch. See you tomorrow. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.